Good afternoon. Welcome, everybody. Uh, sorry for the short uh, delay. Uh, um, I'm very happy and delighted and honored to uh, present uh, the speaker uh, this afternoon, uh, Dr. Nancy Hawker, uh, who is currently a research fellow at the Aga Khan University, the Institute for the Study of Muslim Civilizations. Nancy's main research has been uh, focused on the sociolinguistics of Palestinian Arabic and modern Israeli Hebrew in zones of conflict. And in 2013, she published uh, her book uh, titled Palestinian-Israeli Contact and Linguistic Practices. Her more recently published book, just you know, very freshly minted book, uh, titled um, The Politics of Palestinian Multilingualism, Speaking for Citizenship, was based on her work as a Leverium fellow, uh, fellow here at Oxford and St. Bennett's Hall. Nancy previously worked at Amnesty International's Sectariat in uh, London, and her current research analyzes audience receptivity to women's testimonies uh, that have been translated between Arabic and English in human rights organizations. And the title of her talk today is Palestinian Multilingualism, a Perfectly Normal Adaptation to Colonialism, Conflict, and Late Capitalism. Nancy, thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Yaakov, for inviting me, and thank you, Stacy, for organizing the logistics. Uh, I'm really happy to be back here. Um, uh, I was last here for examinations in June, so it's uh, quite nice to come back and um, engage with you. I'm really curious to hear uh, your reactions to what I have to say. So uh, definitely, if you want to intervene during uh, the talk, just wait till I've finished a sentence, and then I'll be happy to... Uh, engage on any of the points. Um, <clears throat> so uh, what I'd like to do today is, uh, uh, first of all, I'm going to present a snapshot of uh, what the linguistic situation is for Palestinians uh, inside Israel now um, is, and then I'll give the backstory of how this came about. Um, and uh, this is Going through the backstory, we'll go through chronologically more or less the stages of colonialism, conflict, and late capitalism, and how um, the language analysis can give insights to the political and historical analysis that maybe would have otherwise been missed. So, um, on the basis of my research and the research of, uh, of other scholars of, of language and politics, what I'd say today is that in 2019, when I published the book, the situation was that on state platforms in Israel, uh, Arabic is silenced. It is uh, not uh, currently permissible to speak Arabic on state platforms, what I call in the book Zionist platforms, because of course there are other institutional platforms which are Arabic uh, specific, but on state platforms in Israel, Arabic is silenced. That's one element. The second element is that um, Arabic has been now contained for Palestinians to in-group communication. That means that it's avoided in situations which are possibly mixed, where there might be a Jewish-Israeli present or somebody whose identity is unknown or to be negotiated. So Arabic has now retreated into in-group communication. However, also this multilingualism has now formed a repertoire for those Palestinians who can command uh, a range of registers and varieties 
as um, a kind of a resource for pragmatic purposes. So what they do with their multilingualism is that they can achieve specific uh, rhetorical effects. They can do things with the words in, in Hebrew and in Arabic, and I'll look, show you some examples for all three of these elements. But meanwhile, uh, so I'll go back to this story, this narrative of how the situation has come about, uh, starting with colonialism, then conflict, and late capitalism. And throughout that, um, uh, that story, I'm going to highlight uh, now and again how these rhetorical strategies and these, um, this sociolinguistic situation constitutes what makes a legitimate speaker in this polity. Uh, and definitely, I'm looking at political discussions. That's where I did uh, my field work. So uh, as a result of this, of this situation, um, multilingualism has accrued on the Palestinian side of, the, of this very divided and segregated society. So on the, on the Jewish-Israeli side, there's been a progressive, uh, as in other societies, progressive advance of monolingualism. So where there was a very multilingual uh, Jewish-Israeli society at some point in history, progressively Hebrew has become the hegemonic language, and the Palestinians have adapted to that by becoming multilingual. Um, so to do with the legitimate uh, speaker issue, this is a quote from um, Helen McElhenney. It is not enough to speak the legitimate language. You must also be a legitimate speaker. So language ideologies not only rank speaking subjects as racialized, gendered, and classed, they also produce those subjects as racialized, gendered, and classed and locate authenticity of different values and kinds among them. So I have noted here that the class is in uh, brackets, and you'll see in my conclusion that I'm uh, kind of going to offer a reclaiming of the, that category and how that maybe interacts with Palestinian multilingualism as a class phenomenon as well as a uh, national or uh, racialized uh, category. Um, another way of looking at uh, these ideologies, which is one of the uh, analytical tools of sociolinguistics, is that racial-linguistic ideologies produce racialized speaking subjects. So it's not only that we can identify it in analysis, but also these ideologies produce um, a, a political reality who are constructed as linguistically deviant, even when engaging in linguistic practices positioned as normative or innovative when produced by privileged white subjects. So even when uh, the Palestinians and other Arabs in Israel speak Hebrew, it, that, is constitute, that is seen as deviant rather than uh, the normative position. And of course, this is not, um, this is not confined <coughs> to Palestinians. This is a situation that's replicated in other colonial settings. So here I've got a quote from Franz Fanon. And it's also during an uh, election uh, event, which obviously is relevant to my research because I did most of my research on, on uh, election campaigning. A woman fainted during an electoral speech by M.A. Césaire in Martinique in 1945 because Césaire's French was so good. The power of language, he says sarcastically. So M.A. Césaire was uh, an award-winning French writing um, Caribbean writer, right, who, who then became uh, for a long time the leading politician of... Uh, Guadeloupe and Martinique. So here, this kind of gives you the colonials, uh, the colonized uh, perspective on this linguistic dilemma. You either are authentic and you, you don't speak the dominant language, or you are authoritative and you, you embrace the, the hegemonic 
language. And so the dilemmas have to do with claiming authority, claiming authenticity, and finding a platform. So M.A. Césaire had a platform, and you'll see how uh, the Palestinian subjects of my uh, study are looking for platforms in which they would be then uh, legitimate speakers, which is what I'll be highlighting. So let's go to the first examples. And um, how many of you would have guessed that at the opening of the first Knesset in 1949, Arabic was spoken? Here you go. Uh, one of the speeches was by uh, Amin Salim Jarjura, who was the mayor of Nazareth. He was a member of a party that was affiliated with Mapai, which was the, the governing party. And he makes a speech, it's quite a short speech, entirely in Arabic. And um, it is, uh, he says, the young state of Israel shall be founded on principles of freedom, justice, and peace. It will grant social and civil rights to all its citizens without distinction of religion, race, or sex. That's a quote from the, um, the Declaration of Independence. With happiness we see the buds that herald the end of fighting in the Holy Land the end that will be followed by the signing of treaties with, of good neighbors with the Arab countries. So he's kind of trying to do a speech act in Arabic at this most Zionist of ceremonies, yeah. uh, and um, making this, kind of using the, that little bit of inclusiveness in the Declaration of Independence to make this kind of peace message. But what is interesting for me is that I use this uh, uh, this phenomenon to look at the kind of metalinguistic comments that then th his speaking in Arabic caused in the Knesset after that first that first Arabic in in the Knesset. So here we have uh, Moshe, uh, who was then still Shertok, became Sharet, uh, foreign minister, who immediately, as soon as the the um, the speech is finished, he comments that. Um, he, he would like to complete the translation of the speech that Jarjura has just made. And he says uh, the, the, the translation was incomplete. It should have mentioned that the speaker said that uh, Israel should be a light of an example to other nations of how to build uh, regional peace. Yeah? And uh, Shertok, um, obviously as a foreign minister, he chooses to highlight this. This is picked up by Eliyahu Eliashar, who was um, a representative of the Sephardi party in the Knesset, so representing uh, Jews from the Middle East and North Africa. And he uh, says, well, I, re I request that the whole translation be um, included in, uh, be distributed amongst the members of Knesset. And then finally, the last highlighted bit is uh, Josef Sprinzak, who's the chair of the Knesset at the time. He says, the full translation will be included in the stenographic uh, report of this um, of this session, and that's when they end the um, that's when they end the, that uh, that session. So, what is happening here? This is what the Knesset looked like in that first uh, in that first instance. They are setting up a system. They are setting up the structure of this platform. And the structure then is an ethno-republican platform where it's a structure where uh, Hebrew is the dominant language. The record is only kept in Hebrew, but there's a managed diversity within it and translation is managing that diversity. Translation is provided from Arabic into Hebrew and, um, 
and the, um, this is signposted. Uh, so the, even the, Ar the Arabic is provided for the Palestinian and other Arabs, but Eliyahu Eliashar and Moshe Shertok, who both speak Arabic, are the ones who are requesting the translation. Why? Because translation knows ex translation demarcates where that boundary is between the language, that is the other language, and this language. And they needed that boundary to be clear because what they were doing is setting up a system that um, reinforces the one nation, one language ideology, which was kind of the raison d'etre of this new state. Yeah, that they needed this to be clear. They couldn't have a, a blurred boundary in this situation. Um, yes, who can you recognize in this picture of the first Knesset? <coughs> of course, he's there at the opening. So... <coughs> Uh, there's Herzl there. He's 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 looking over them. Yeah, yeah. On the f on the far left there. Uh -huh. Yes. So I can see only one person who might be wearing headphones. Yeah, because a simultaneous translation was provided to those who were who could not understand Hebrew. Yeah, there's one person here. So let's look a little bit. So I've done the research a little bit for you. So you have uh, on the right, that's Amin Salim Jarjura. At the top, that's Moshe uh, Sharet. That's Yosef Sprintzak. And that's Eliyahu Eliashar from a uh, uh, prominent uh, Jewish family of Jerusalem. Right. Another person who spoke Arabic in that first, in that opening ceremony was Taufik Tubi. Taufik Tubi was only 27 years old. Um, he was uh, representing the Communist Party, and he also made a speech in Arabic. Here you have uh, uh, a, the, 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 the reason I know it was in Arabic, there's obviously no record of it, is that it says translation from Arabic. It's a much longer speech than Jarjura's, and here he, he says the, the principles on which the Israeli state claimed to be founded are being violated and um, it's becoming an imperialist uh, project and the, the, the refugees are the evidence of this are refugees in camps all around the region and they uh, need to be brought home and how will this be arranged he names the villages that have been emptied and he um, uh, he goes into details about numbers and uh, so on Already then, um, Taufik Tubi knew enough Hebrew to heckle speeches in Hebrew uh, in that first Knesset. Yeah. Um, so, who was the, how was this managed? This person in the middle is Moshe Piamenta. He was the first translator uh, in the Knesset. Um, he's from a family, also a Jewish family of Jerusalem, 14 generations in Jerusalem by the 1940s. And uh, he wrote an article about this uh, in Middle Eastern Affairs. It's only four pages long, but it gave me a lot of information. And what it meant, the system that he was managing meant that Arabic was heard for long stretches in the Knesset because the, the, the Arabic-speaking parliamentarians were made their speech in Arabic, and there was consecutive interpreting 
of those speeches by Moshe uh, Piamenta. For, for, the, for those parliamentarians, those Arab Palestinian and other parliamentarians who could not understand Hebrew, there was simultaneous interpreting into headphones, which was an expensive and new technology at the time. It had been most recently used at the Nuremberg trials, and it, was, it, it required a lot of skills. And he was quite proud, Moshe Piamenta, of being able to set this up. He did complain a little bit of overworking, even in this uh, short article. Uh, eventually, he did get an assistant, actually. He, um, I interesting story, he, he, re he died in 2012. His brother was a very senior member of the Shabak. So, uh, whilst Moshe Piamenta, he, was, uh, he became an academic, worked at the Hebrew University. He won the Israel Prize for Scholarship um, in 1996. Um, and some of his work has to do with how um, Jewish Jerusalem varieties of Arabic were disappearing, and uh, he, he wrote extensively about that. He also was tasked in the 70s with uh, setting up a curriculum for teaching Arabic mm -hmm. in Jewish schools um, that would be a communicative method rather than the um, um, passive comprehension, uh, comprehension method that was promoted by the military. So. Um, and I think he has a nephew that was a rock star, I, I th something like that. It's an interesting family anyway. One of my ideas for the future is to maybe do a biography of that. So this is what it looked like, again, from the inside. This is what it looked like from the outside. Uh, it was still on King George Street in Jerusalem. It had just been moved to Jerusalem after the UN had made a resolution on, um, on Jerusalem being administered internationally. So as a reaction to that, Ben-Gurion moved the Knesset to Jerusalem. So yes, you correctly identified uh, Ben-Gurion. There he is in the middle. That behind him is Yosef Sprinsak, who is credited with setting up the parliamentary culture in Israel. Uh, behind him, that is Moshe Piamenta. Yeah, he's, uh, he's behind a screen so that he doesn't, his, his simultaneous translation doesn't disturb the speakers. And there on the, uh, that's the stenographer. Taking the record in Hebrew only. Yeah, there's no Arabic in the official records of the Knesset. So that's the first element of constructing legitimacy of speech. You create the platforms and you create how that platform is managed. Uh, when Ben-Gurion came to speak after Jatrura and Tubi the next day, he's what he said was, for the first time in history, members of the two nations, the Jewish nation and the Arab nation, come together. So for the first time in history, Jews and Arabs come together, really? Um, but what he was doing, he was, he was turning it into this equation, right? These two speakers had spoken in Arabic. They were representatives of the Arab nation, the Jews, spoken in Hebrew, which must have been quite difficult for many of them, right? They had, uh, many of them were born in, in, in Europe and elsewhere. But he was establishing this blood lineage, you know, the Arabs and the, and the Jews. And then he mentions Jatshura and Tubi and welcomes them as if they are guests in this Knesset, which is, uh, yeah. But then he spends most of his time demolishing what Tubi had to say. But they weren't the only two. There was uh, Jarjura and Tubi, and there was a third uh, Arabic-speaking member of Knesset, Seif al-Din Azorbi. 
who came later on, and he was also uh, elected on a list that was aligned with the governing party. He also was the mayor of Nazareth. According to Piamenta, uh, Zorbi uh, could understand Hebrew just about, but he could not speak in it. And that's uh, when I looked through the parliamentary records, I only found instances where his interventions were pre-prepared. He had sent in his uh, interventions uh, to be translated uh, in advance. So he doesn't do the spontaneous heckling that Tubi, uh, Tofik Tubi could do. So this is one example from 1966. Um, Seif al-Din he is um, starting off to say, um, Nazareth has been put under military administration, which was obviously a, a problem for him because he had been mayor of Na Nazareth. He had been the civilian mayor of Nazareth. This, there, were some, there was a kind of social crisis in Nazareth to do with the control of the municipality and the military appointed a governor, a military governor. And the way he goes about complaining about this is that he says the governor cannot function because he does not know Arabic. And uh, most of the, the, the population of uh, Nazareth speaks Arabic, and uh, the staff of the municipality speaks Arabic, and um, they find it difficult to operate with a governor who does not speak Arabic. And then the, underneath the other bit that's highlighted in yellow, it's the, the deputy uh, interior minister says, the fact that the military governor, Mr. Einstein, does not speak Arabic does not reduce his effectiveness in any way. Yeah. And, uh, and the staff can cope perfectly well in Hebrew. So, um, and then finally, Seyfedin Zabi comes back on to, the, to what um, the, the deputy minister of interior had to say. But the speaker, uh, the, chair, the chair of the session, Yitzhak Navon, uh, instructs the translator, that's the highlighted bit, to only translate the speech that has not been pre-prepared. The pre-prepared speech does not need to be translated, and that's what's recorded in the, in, in, um, in the official record. So we can already see by 1966, there's a problem with Arabic on state platforms. This kind of managed translation that maybe Moshe Piamenta had wanted <coughs> to institute, and that was present in that first year of the Knesset, is now being withdrawn gradually. The platform is, um, is disappearing. Hillel Cohen wrote a very good book about the situation of, these, uh, of some of these Palestinian and other leaders who were cooperating with the authorities and trying to um, maybe manage the situation cooperatively and did get some advantages from that. For instance, their land wasn't confiscated quite as much as the land was confiscated from other Palestinians. Whereas the, the communists were in a situation of opposition to that uh, kind of um, cooperation with the authorities. This is Taufik Tubi a little bit older because he he did last a very long time in the Knesset, right? He, he lasted from 1949 continuously to 1990. He was the last serving Knesset member who had also served in the first Knesset. He is uh, remembered for, in 1985, introducing uh, the basic law, which has a wording of uh, the state for all its citizens. Um, and here's another, um, there's another quote from the 1960s, 
where Taufik Tubi is having an argument. He has the floor, and uh, he's being heckled by another Arab in the Knesset called Jaber Moadi. And the way it's recorded in the Knesset uh, protocol is um, uh, there's an exchange of words between Moadi and the speaker. So it's not specified what the um, words were. To which Abraham Herzfeld, who obviously could not understand, uh, he was born, I think, in Poland, he, he asks, why is it necessary to curse? So he's heard Arabic, he's heard these two Arabs speaking, exchanging words in Arabic, and he's, his intervention is to ask, why is it necessary to curse? Now, obviously, there's no simultaneous, there's no translation is happening. That's why Heltzfeld is feeling alienated from this situation where the Arabs are having an argument. And Taufik Tubi resorts to translating himself, right? By then, the translation has been to withdrawn to such a degree that he says, Taufik Tubi says, I'm not cursing. Well, maybe he was, but we don't know. Um, I'm just saying that... Uh, the the Jabir Mahdi is not representing um, his own constituency, the Druze constituency, and then so he's translating himself. And then uh, the chair says, "There's been a decision made that um, the exchange between Mahdi and Tubi has not is not going to be translated and it's not going to be recorded in the official protocol." And um, uh, anyway, it doesn't matter because as the translator has informed me that the exchange between Tubi and Mahdi is of a personal nature. And Taufik Tubi comes back again and he translates himself. He says, I do not have any personal matters between um, uh, Jabir Mahdi and myself. I am just saying that he is not representing uh, his, his Druze constituency. And then the decision is made, the translation will not be recorded and these, um, these, will, these words will not be entered into the record. So we don't know, maybe he was shouting to Mahdi saying, you are a re reactionary, because obviously Tubi was a communist. But we don't know, right? Because by then, there'd been a retreat of Arabic, and this is what I call the Arabic silence, which seems to have gone from the middle of the 1960s until, as you will see, maybe uh, 2010. <coughs> So that's the element of constructing the legitimacy of speech, uh, make the audience. So when, um, when Taufik Tubi was speaking in Hebrew, he did so because there were urgent problems affecting the Palestinian and other Arab population, and he was addressing the authorities, and the authorities were Hebrew speaking. It was a matter of expediency, and um, he needed to resolve uh, these problems in policy. There were other Palestinian speakers at the time who had other platforms, as Hanan Akara and Elias Kusa were lawyers. So in the courts also, at the beginning, there, were tra there was translation. By the time the 60s happened, uh, came about, Nakara and Kusa could, could operate in Hebrew. And Hebrew, uh, Elias Kusa complained a lot. He wrote a lot of complaints that he could no longer operate in Hebrew, in Arabic in the courts. But by the 60s, um, by the 60s, it was Hebrew only. Um, because their audience was the, the policy makers and the, the judiciary. So, <coughs> so... Was there a formal decision to... No. Army? No. It was just practice. Yeah. <coughs> the only evidence we have are these little meta-commentaries meta on the absence yeah. Yeah, of translation. 
So here we have a few events that happened during that Arabic silence on the institutional platforms. So at the top, uh, do you recognize what's happening? Yeah, that's Anwar Sadat in the Knesset. So Anwar Sadat was obviously, he was the president of Egypt. He'd, uh, he was building, they were building up to the, the peace accords with um, Menachem Begin, who's, um, yeah. So for Anwar Sadat's visit, there was simultaneous translation in both sides. You can see the headphones. So at one point, the one photo, it's the, he's speaking in Arabic. They have headphones on. The Begin had just finished speaking in Hebrew. Sadat has the headphones on. So, and what's happening in the bottom? It was Rabin's funeral, yeah? So another kind of very, uh, a state institutional platform, a Zionist platform, who's speaking? Any guesses? Mubarak is speaking, yeah. So what language do you think he's speaking? He's speaking English. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's speaking English. And uh, King Hussein of Jordan also <coughs> spoke in English, yeah? The, can you imagine how it would have come across if Mubarak had spoken Arabic at Yitzhak Rabin's funeral? Yeah. That was not the right. He, they were creating an audience, which was in the 90s, this, the Bill Clinton's um, effort for the Oslo process. This was, uh, you know, the peace was going to break out in the Middle East, if you remember. There was that time. But there was obviously, uh, you can see they needed translation into English, I suppose, because all three of them are wearing the headphones. Um, was there pushback from the Egyptians about, about Mubarak speaking in English? No, I, I, I think that it was just accepted that English was the uh, lingua franca for this type of diplomacy. So that's the Arabic silence. The fact that Anwar Sadat spoke in Arabic, that was because he was addressing the Arabs that were beyond the border. It did not change anything for the local Arabs because, in fact, when Sadat says, we the Arabs, he did not mean any Arabs that were potentially present there. He was definitely giving up on them and um, speaking on behalf of uh, the Egyptians. Right, so um, I'm fast forwarding a little bit because uh, it's very hard to document silence um, uh, linguistically. So I'm going to 2015. This is a little bit uh, to show you um, to show you that silence. So uh, to go through the chronology of it, I showed you the two speeches in Arabic in the uh, inauguration of the Knesset. Anwar Sadat speaks in Arabic. And Emil Habibi, in, uh, who was a member of Knesset for the Communist Party also for many years, he uh, was awarded the Israel Prize for Literature in 1992. He was not given the opportunity to speak at that award. You know, he, he had prepared a speech, but uh, and it's not known what language he was going to say it in. But he was, uh, it was thought that it would be too um, provocative to have him speak at that, on that platform, so he did not speak. Uh, then you have the Yitzhak Rabin's funeral, you rightly recognized. Uh, 2012 is the first record I could find of an Arab going back to speaking Arabic in the Knesset. And Tala Bassana, who's a Bedouin representative in the Knesset, he managed to slip in 20 seconds of Arabic until he was shouted down. And 2013 was the next instance, as far as I could find. Tala Babu Arar, another Bedouin representative, started, started reading a, a Quranic verse in Arabic. He, got, he, was, he didn't get to the end of it. Uh, he was shouted down. 
So you can see that's a far cry from those inaugural speeches in Arabic that were possible for Seyfedin and Zabi, for Jatrura, for Tubi. In 2012, it becomes a different strategy. They are doing, speaking a few words in Arabic in order to increase the audibility of Arabic on this uh, Hebrew-only platform. Those who, Israel Eichler, interestingly, who's a representative of a, of a, of a religious um, of a religious faction in the Knesset, an uh, ultra-Orthodox um, Ashkenazi faction. He said one sentence in Arabic. Um, then Miri Regev uh, said a sentence in Arabic. And then, and then 2015, it really kicks off. And that, funnily enough, is the year after I was awarded this <laughs> fellowship to do, the <laughs> to do a research on why there was no Arabic in the Knesset. And then suddenly there were <laughs> all these people. It was as if, as if they did it on purpose. Yeah. Right, so how does it actually work in practice? So I have here uh, another excerpt from the transcript, the Knesset transcript. It's Ayman Ode, who was the leader of the joint list in 2015. So he was representing the kind of uh, an, uh, an alliance of four parties, of which three were the Arabic, uh, Arab parties and one the Communist Party. And he just comes along, and it's the 23rd of December, uh, 2015, and um, he just wants to say something. So he says, um, I'm, I'm going to turn to my, um, to my compatriots. And then in the stenographers, the stenographer puts these brackets, highlighted in yellow, he says, he speaks in Arabic from now on, recording the translation. So... He basically goes on to say it's in uh, in honor of Christmas that's coming and the the birth of the prophet. I would like to say to um, my my fellow citizens, um, happy holidays, etc., etc. Immediately, he doesn't even manage to go on with his speech. Right, he's interrupted by uh, Ksenia Svetlova, who starts saying something which is not recorded. That's just unrecorded heckling. And then he repeats himself, and this time it's recorded in Arabic. He says, Kul am ul And then he translates himself. He says, Happy holidays to everybody. Then there's some more heckling. Uh, and then there's more transcription of Arabic. He says, Shukran, thank you, thank you. Uh, happy holidays to you as well. And then uh, another, Omer Barlev feels a bit excluded from this Arabic all the time, yeah, so he says, tell us what you said, and he says, well, what I meant, what I said was just happy holidays for everybody, and uh, we are going to struggle together for a good life, a dignified life in our homeland, and uh, so then he starts being heckled again, what homeland, what historical homeland are you talking about, and then he tries to change the subject, and then it just descends into shouts, yeah, so he's... (laughs) He, he can't continue with his speech. He's being heckled. Finally, he regains the floor and he tries to justify uh, his Arabic. He's kind of forced into a position of trying to explain why he's, he's speaking Arabic. He says, I actually consider the fact that Arabs are multilingual to be an added value. And uh, if you know another person's language, then you... Um, uh, you, uh, it's, it, it enriches you as a person, and you can uh, really understand somebody else's history and uh, their culture. So he sees it as added value. That's his actual words. 
I'll come back to that when I'm talking about class uh, language resources as added value. So what changed between 1992 when Arabic was silenced and uh, 2015? And what I argue is that what changed in those intervening years was the advent of late capitalism. So on the left, you have Emil Habibi, definitely not a capitalist. <coughs> uh, he was in the Knesset off, so for uh, quite a long time. He um, was also a novelist. And uh, you can see here his mouth is closed, his eyes are somehow, he's looking to the side. He knew at the, very, at the award ceremony for the Israel Prize for Literature, he was being heckled by a right-wing politician. So maybe he's looking at him. Lucy Harish, or in Arabic, Lucy Harish, she uh, was given the honor of lighting the torch at the Israel Independence uh, Day on her, uh, Mount Herzl in 2015. She is there with her mouth open. Yeah, she is allowed to give a speech. She was also heckled by the right wing uh, for, for being an Arab speaking on a Zionist platform. Yeah. But in the m intervening years, what happened was uh, these kind of phenomena of, of late capitalism. So the percentage of school leavers who went into higher education um, more than doubled, um, which is in line with the uh, developments in, um, in all the Western uh, capitalist democracies. In Israel, it's specifically interesting because tertiary education is one of the desegregated spaces, so uh, it would be perhaps for many uh, Palestinian and Arab citizens and for Jewish Israeli citizens the first place where they'd encounter somebody of the other uh, nationality or ethnicity. It's also um, an instance of uh, a neoliberal education marketing marketing these skills as, as a marketable resource. Yeah? So this becomes a new idea of what knowledge means and it's something that you can buy and add on your CV. At the same time, however, these graduates in 2016, when I got these statistics, they, they came against some structural inequalities. So Palestinian citizens, uh, Palestinian graduates uh, from Israeli uh, educational systems would earn a lot less. Usually they'd go to work in education um, rather than in the, their area of expertise. So um, these are the people who who came of age, political age, at the time when I was doing the field work. These are the people who are wanting to vote to change the, uh, this kind of uh, structural inequality in a materialist terms. Also at the same time, um, the number of shopping centers of Israel increased dramatically. Um, I, yeah, my count was that currently there are about um, 116 uh, big shopping centers in Israel, so it, that's, um, yeah, the rise of consumerist leisure, so the idea that you can, you can buy your free time outside of a uh, political context. And the product of this, and I'm using Lucy Aharish a little bit, uh, maybe, as an emblematic example of, uh, of um, the rise of this consumerist uh, generation, this uh, late capitalist generation. She is a news presenter, therefore her linguistic skills are her resource. Yep. She was the first uh, Arab to be the, on mainstream, uh, mainstream TV, the news reader. And she, here she is at the ceremony for the uh, Independence Day. So she's presented, you can see, this is the video of the, um, of the ceremony, and she is presented as an, um, 
um, she's an interviewer and uh, a journalist. She's a Muslim Arab. <laughs> she pioneered the advancement of respectful dialogue between Arabs and Jews. And then she says of herself, I am the daughter of Salwa and Ma'roof. And Salwa and Ma'roof are Arab names. She is claiming on this most Zionist of platforms Arab identity. Uh, then uh, she makes this uh, speech full of pathos and, uh, she, you know, sincere. I mean, these are emotions that she has expressed also elsewhere. And she ends with uh, one uh, sentence in Arabic. And then she says, uh, I am lighting this torch for the glory of the state of Israel. Yeah, so what she is doing is... She, on this Zionist platform, she is saying, we the Israelis, in Arabic. Uh, um, which, she is claiming s some kind of liberal transformation of the state that would include this multilingualism as a resource for her success. Yeah, so this is, um, of course she, you know, it provoked negative reactions from uh, Palestinian nationalists, it provoked uh, negative reactions from uh, Lehava and uh, um, anti-assimilation, anti, um, Jewish supremacist you know, faction as well. Um, so going on from that, I know I'm going a bit quickly, but um, this is a third element. So you can see how in this context of colonialism and conflict, some speakers are trying to increase Arabic audibility on Hebrew monolingual platforms. But there's something else. There's how to use your repertoires to do speech acts that work, how to claim legitimacy through speech acts, which speech acts are um, is, uh, yeah, an element of language philosophy. Um, it's been analyzed as words that can be said within certain contexts and certain circumstances that create some kind of material difference in the real world. So this is now drawing on my own field work. Uh, and the situation is one of uh, these two speakers. So we have two communist members of Knesset, Dov Khenin, a very active uh, member of Knesset for the Communist Party. He resigned in 2019. Um, credited with uh, introducing the best legislation for the protection of uh, women from violence and for environmental protection. He was awarded the UNICEF award for uh, in 2014 for that year for doing the most for the protection of children. Um, and here he is in this uh, Bedouin tent in Lakia where I did um, field work just a few weeks before the elections in March 2015. The other Knesset member, Aida Touma Suleiman, a new member of Knesset, also communist, and uh, she is being introduced by Dov Khenin to these Bedouin women who know Dov Khenin for a while. So in this Bedouin tent, we have um, the representative of this women's cooperative, the director of the organization, Dov Khenin, Aida Touma Suleiman, and about 12 women from the, from the cooperative who are women who are severely deprived in socioeconomic terms. And um, this is the speech that I'd like to uh, analyze with you. And um, the speech was mostly in Hebrew. Dov Khenin is a Jewish Israeli. He does, he's highly educated, and, uh, but the, in, in respect for him, the, most of the, the conversation was going on in um, in Hebrew. 
But at this point, Aida Tuma Sleiman is taking the floor and she is signaling that she is now going to switch from that language that had been going on for a while and now she will speak in Arabic. And Dovchenin understands immediately that this is asking uh, permission of him. So he says, yes, yes, you can uh, speak in Arabic. So in my transcript, the italics is Hebrew and the regular font is Arabic, in case you can't read the transcript on the left. Um, so Aydatouma Sleiman is claiming some kind of authority on one subject, which is uh, women's rights in the Nakab. I'm thinking this way, and then she addresses the director of the cooperative. Maybe for a long time, we, the subject of the women in the Nakab, you know, as far as I'm concerned, this is a subject that has occupied my mind for more than 10 years. So um, the pauses are ma marked as brackets with dots. She is claiming authority, and her switch is taking the floor from Dovchenin who is the more senior politician. The director continues for a while in Arabic. She says, but I have something I need to say. I would like to get it across, I mean. I'd like to get the message through. Is it okay to say a word? I don't know if Dov understands Arabic well. So there's an activist there, Jewish-Israeli act rights activist, who intervenes in Arabic, in her Arabic, um, which has mistakes, but it's Arabic. Uh, he understands Arabic well, better than me. And Dovchenin understands. He understands well enough to laugh. He understands that it's a tease and a joke. The director's back. The director is serious. She says it is very important. It is very important that the front, which is the Communist Party, understands exactly the mood in the Nakab. And then she switches to Hebrew to make sure that the point gets across. Um, so when I look at this, um, and of course her switching back to Hebrew means that the local women who were women who had very little formal education, they could not follow the Hebrew. But the point that needed to get across was just how deprived these women were. But to voice their deprivation to the authorities, they had to somehow be excluded from the discourse. They could not understand the Hebrew, but it had to be voiced in Hebrew. And I, maybe in this I can see the urgency that Taufik Tubi and Hannah Nakara felt in those early years when the dispossession of Palestinians was still very fresh. Another example um, where, again, I'm going to look to see what language do you need to create your legitimacy for your speech to create authority for your speeches from Hura, another, another Bedouin locality, at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale. It was built in the 1970s to force the sedentarization of, of uh, Bedouin. And uh, the gradually they did move in, the Bedouin, and, um, but sanitation was only introduced in the 90s. I think anyway, it's a, it's a very uh, deprived place. And here I am in this town hall, again, and now there's not even a single Jewish-Israeli present. And Dovchenin isn't there. It's a town hall debate with representatives of the Arab parties and of, uh, of the joint list, therefore, in 2015, and of the advocates for boycotting the elections. So it's a political uh, hustings, let's say, before the elections. And an argument has just broken out. And uh, the audience is very engaged, very keen on debating um, ideas of uh, the common good and who to vote for. 
And uh, Nawaf Nabari, who I've here's noted as NN, is the chair of the debate. He's a local journalist from one of the local tribes. And he is trying, in formal Arabic, to get them to quiet down. And he's saying, please, rija'an, ya jama'a, gentlemen, brothers, please, sir, no, we cannot go on like this. They are shouting on top of him. On the recording, his voice is kind of like a distant, um, distant, very uh, polite voice trying to get them to quieten down. But then he says, Ismahli, and then he turns to one of the one of the voters in the audience who has been particularly <coughs> argumentative, and he says, Ach, so and so, and then he switches to Hebrew. This very polite, speaking in very formal Arabic, suddenly switches to Hebrew, and he says. I am calling you to order for the third time. And then the voter understands this. He knows what's going on. Oh dear, oh dear, I'm in trouble now. You know, this is sarcastic. Um, oh dear, yes, he And uh, the chair says, Bitachon, the security, as if I could now call the security from the door. Of course, there is no security. This is, you know, this is a dust filled like, sports hall. Security, and he says to him, they're sitting behind you now. So what is he doing? Why is he using Hebrew? It's the authorities. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bogeyman, you know, bitachon will come. That's like as bad as it gets. But also with the anikure lechalesed this is exactly what the Knesset chair says when the parliamentarians get out of order because if you're you're out for the you 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 know you interrupt for the third time you're out right and they don't want to sound like those rude parliamentarians it's an in joke yeah we yeah come on we are better than that so he is creating a he's parodying the knesset chair in order to create a solidarity and it works the guy did quieten down, and he could go. But they could go back to taking turns, which was what the chair wanted: was to have this polite political debate. He didn't want them to be shouting at each other. Um, partly, I think, maybe because I was there, I was the only outsider. He wanted them to not be not be unruly Bedouin, you know, to take turns and discuss it politely. So another way of creating a platform in which you get authority is Arabic Language Day in the Knesset, which was instituted in 2017 for the first time. Um, it's a little bit like having International Women's Day in the situation of rampant sexism. Yeah? You have an exception to the rule. <laughs> you have an exception where by having Arabic Language Day for one day, the institutional monolingualism that's normally there becomes more obvious. But interesting things happened, and I included this for you. So Yossi Yona, whose parents were born in Iraq, took the floor in Arabic uh, on that day. Uh, and people have to ask, should we put the headphones on? Lassim was niot? Yeah? And he says, yeah, take, put, on your, put on your headphones, because now I'm speaking in Arabic. And he's, he's an academic, Yossi Yona, for the Labour Party. And he speaks in Arabic, and he obviously what's recorded is the translation, as usual. Everything's recorded in Hebrew, even though it's Arabic language day. And he's saying that it's so great that his preferred leader of the Labour Party was elected in the primaries in Arabic. 
And the reactions to that is not to do with the content, um, it's to do with the language. Yeah? Again, the metalinguistic analysis is what interests me. And another Labour Party uh, member says, come on, it's, it's uh, painful enough in Hebrew, uh, you don't have to rub it in in Arabic. Yeah? And then Yeshatid uh, Yael Gelman says, you said thank you to Allah. She picks up on this that when he says "Nushkur uh, Allah," that uh, you know, but he used an Arabic word for Allah, and uh, and so in the end, the discussion becomes about this, about whether it can be ordinary to speak Arabic, and this is what he's trying to say. So the last bit I highlighted was this, where he says, "This is ordinary, isn't it?" Well, really, it isn't. That was the whole point of Arabic Language Day. Yeah, you cannot take what was ordinary for him to speak in Arabic with his parents and put it in the Knesset. Right. Sure. Yeah, we're nearly there. So can you use Arabic and be a, a legitimate speaker? Well, some people have managed. So I apologize to those who uh, don't know Hebrew or Arabic, but it will be quite clear. This is Miri Regev, who's a Likud. Uh, so you need to switch to Oh, yeah, it doesn't do it, does it? So she's coming up on a debate about access to uh, Haram al-Sharif, Harabayt, Temple Mount in Jerusalem, in the old city of Jerusalem, which was uh, a matter of contest at the time. And this is how she deals with it. חבר הכנסת פגלין ידידי, יוזם הדיון, שרה לבנת, חבריי חברי הכנסת. במלחמת ששת הימים אמר הרמטכ"ל דאז מוטה גור, הר הבית בידינו. אם הוא היה אומר את זה היום, הוא היה נעצר. ואני שואלת אתכם כאן, מעל במת הכנסת, האם יהודי שרוצה לעלות להר הבית, צריך להגיד את, המשמע, את המשפט, לעילה, הילה, הוא המוחמד רסול עלה. Right, so she's saying, <coughs> uh, you know, what was the point of the, of the 1967 war if now a Jew cannot go on to uh, temple, the Temple Mount? Is it necessary, therefore, for a Jew to say this sentence, which is the, uh, the Muslim conversion sentence uh, um, in Arabic, in order to be able to get access uh, to uh, the Temple Mount? <laughs> Right. So I think that gives you an idea. Yeah, so this is a kind of theatrics of, of uh, political debate, but this is the way that Arabic has been used by right-wing uh, politicians. She, um, she made it to a high rank in the IDF, and possibly that's where she has found a way of using, uh, of learning Arabic. Then we have Yinon Magal, and this is from 2015 again. So he, um, Yinon Magal was a representative for Jewish Home, about the Yehudi. He has a BA in Middle East Studies from Hebrew University. Uh, so that gives you a warning about what education can do to you. 
And uh, uh, so he decides to speak in, uh, he uses his three minutes. So the way that's m structured is that when you have uh, the speaker's podium, you have three minutes for your speech. And he uses his three minutes to speak in Arabic, as you will see, and in which he uh, talks about uh, Jewish, uh, the exclusively Jewish right to Israel due to Israel uh, Jewish history and the exclusion of Palestinians from that. And he threaten he is yeah he threatens the the representatives of the Palestinians and other Arabs. So I'll let you listen just because well. <laughs> Yeah, so he calls them now cousins. So here I've just stopped it because the camera has pick, picked up the uh, members of Knesset, which are from the Arab parties, just trying to look at their reactions when they're addressed in Arabic. Also, these strategies seem to work because not every parliamentary session uh, is recorded in this way with videos. So once, once they do some theatrics like this, it does get uh, picked up by the media. Yeah. السلام عليكم ابناء العام اتواجه اليكم بلغه العربيه لانه اريد ان تسمعوا الحق زعماءكم لن يتحدثوا اليكم بصراخه اسمعوني نحن عدنا لبلادنا بعد 2000 سنه في الشتات وفي كل تاريخ العالم لن تسمعوا زي هذا الشيء وهي وطننا الوحيده وهذا مكتوب في القرآن سورة سبعة آية مية وستة والأنف والإرهاب لن يخرجون منهم. So, um, right, so he, he gives a kind of um, narrative of uh, returning to the homeland after 2,000 years in exile. And, uh, you know, he, he says, and you cannot uh, oppose this through uh, violent uh, resistance and terrorism. And he's also dismissing the way the Palestinian and other Arab representatives are uh, portraying um, history and says, what I'm telling you now is the truth. That's why I have to say it to you in Arabic, so as to communicate with you directly. Anyway, he got done in on um, sexual harassment allegations. So that's a, that's a way of going about it. But um, he obviously, he also uh, served in the army and he, the, what Yoni Mendel, so uh, one of the scholars of, of Arabic in Israel, Yonatan Mendel, has written a book on Israeli Arabic. And the, the way he portrays it, Israeli Arabic is a way of using Arabic by Israelis, Jewish Israelis, in order, well, uh, through an education which was promoted by the army. So using Arabic in these kinds of settings by right-wing uh, Jewish Israelis, and I'm using right-wing as a kind of shortcut, you know, to describe a certain position on the on the conflict, um, is to display this kind of legitimacy, this kind of authority associated with uh, with militarized education in some way. You know, I've I've gained this knowledge of Arabic through um, a type of education that is supported by the military. I can display my credentials, not to the Palestinians or other Arabs, but to other Jews, to other Jewish Israeli voters. And um, anyway, you, you can look at Yoni's um, really excellent um, analysis looking through the archives of, of how this education system was created. So to cheer you up a little bit, 
If these platforms don't work, then it seems that uh, Palestinians and other Arabs in Israel have just created other other ways of going about and using their language as uh, a resource to create very entertaining cinematic um, uh, productions. So this is this is uh, Avodah Ravit by Said Keshua. Avodah Ravit was a sitcom uh, that started being um, broadcast on mainstream TV in Israel in 2007. Uh, in English, it was rendered as Arab labor, but Avodah Ravit also means it's a pun. It also means shoddy work. And uh, Said Keshua is one of those people who who has high degrees of, of uh, multilingual proficiency, and he uses it as a way of doing humor. I don't think the video works, but mm. anyway, never mind. So in this, in this, um, I, anyway, it's very funny, and he uses puns in in both languages to kind of uh, highlight a very nuanced identity that's not exclusively uh, Israeli or Palestinian, and. Um, kind of putting the conflict as a background rather than the center of the, of the, um, uh, of the, of the, of the narrative. And uh, there was a kind of rise in cinematic productions in, um, after the end of the Second Intifada inside Israel. Again, multilingual cinematic productions, and a lot of them very successful. All of these that I've got here are, were award-winning, so Ajemi, in 2009, set in a deprived district of Jaffa, um, talking about drugs and uh, social deprivation using multilingualism. In between was about the situation of uh, Arab women in Israel, also very funny. Um, and uh, 2018, I really recommend, if you have not seen Tel Aviv on Fire, it is a very, very funny film about a screenwriter who's Arab and is, uh, has to cross a checkpoint in order to get to uh, to work every day and the the check the head of the checkpoint wants to contribute to this film script and keeps having suggestions on how you know you could portray different characters and uh, so all of these um, relatively successful productions again are using multilingualism as a resource but the most successful uh, multilingual um, cinematic production of this decade has been Fouda, which got a Netflix, uh, Netflix contract. Fouda is an Israeli um, production. It's about an elite commando unit um, that is, um, infiltrates uh, armed groups, Palestinian armed groups in the occupied Palestinian territories by speaking Arabic so well that they can pass for Palestinians. So again, this is using uh, multilingualism as a skill, as a, as a resource. And the passing for uh, issue, as you can see on that photo, it's the, the, the person in the forefront is the military commando um, Israeli. And uh, the, the person in the background is the terrorist Palestinian. And you can see it's kind of playing on the idea that these they look quite similar, and as uh, its identity, the boundedness of their identities can be destabilized by passing for the other group. So even though it it, it uh, destabilizes the exclusive categories, that destabilization is a threat to security, and the um, obviously the winners are the you know 
the big fat commandos, and they don't win by using books or humor, I can tell you that. Uh, so, and as a result of the success of Fauda, um, which maybe was the first time some uh, Jewish Israelis saw Jews speaking Arabic so well, there was an increase apparently in sign-up for Arabic classes in Israel. That's, uh, um, that was reported by commercial providers of Arabic language courses that some of many more students gave us the reason for signing up that they had seen Arabic on Fauda and that they wanted to speak like that. I see that as the enmeshing of securitism with consumerism, you know, in the in the context of less late capitalism. So that might be what we are looking forward to. Right. So why am I doing this? So these are some of the uh, sources. Uh, this is the, some of the scholarship that I like uh, on Arabic and Hebrew in Israel. Um, uh, Daniel Lefkowitz did a study which was anthropological, going around listening to people uh, and how they spoke. He was based mostly in Haifa. And he uh, brought with him from uh, US mm -hmm. studies a kind of uh, idea of the, of the mapping of language and ways of speaking on racial categories. Ronnie Henkin I like very much because she uses pragmatics to analyze uh, speech acts. So that's definitely the method I was um, inspired by, and she use it to, uses it to highlight the way multilingualism can be used for humor. Jonathan Mendel, I mentioned him uh, with regards to the education system and how uh, Arabic was um, um, promoted as part of the security, uh, security system in Israel. Bill Cotton Ori Horish did a variationist study, which is a sociolinguistics way of studying phonetic change about how refugees from Jaffa uh, started to speak slightly differently from uh, those who would, did not become refugees throughout the his, uh, as a result of the history uh, of 1948. And uh, Tommaso Milani and Erez Levon have done work on how language is used to claim um, a kind of a type of multilingual <laughs> pluralism in Israel, including uh, for LGBTQ rights um, in Israel, a kind of um, inclusiveness that maybe doesn't exist as much as um, some people allow. And uh, what they, the, scholarship, the scholarship that I'm reacting against is the scholarship that sees these languages as kind of in conflict, that's as if that's the only way of looking at it. So this is one quote, interference from local sedentary dialects have in the meantime penetrated the Bedouin dialects more deeply. Yeah? So it's uh, one language versus the other language and they penetrate each other and that's a source of a problem. Here we go, more penetration, yeah? A more serious penetration occurs when the knowledge of Hebrew is traceable among younger groups in the educational domain and this is attributed mostly to the Druze and maybe the male Bedouin and it's linked in this kind of generalized um, summary to and serving in the army. And look, here we have penetration again. I wonder what Sigmund Freud would have to say about this. Yeah, here it's uh, Abdul Rahman Mar'i, who says, does the massive lexical penetration of Hebrew into Arabic constitute a danger to the essence of the presence of Arabic in the country? Yeah, this is mostly how the scholarship looks at it. Another way of calling penetration is interference. Yeah, that's another way it's generally been refer referred to. And here we have Rafael Talmon, 
Uh, Arabic is a minority language in Israel. One may recall the intensively quoted words of the Arab Knesset member Zobi, who expressed his concern back in 1966 about the disappearance of Arabic from use in the state of Israel. The facts hardly justify this pessimistic view, although Zorbi's impressionistic evaluation may be judged somewhat differently after consideration of the role of Hebrew interference in the Arabic used by the Arab citizens of Israel. So what is going on here? Obviously, um, Zorbi, I, if you remember the beginning of the talk, <laughs> Zorbi did complain in 1966 that the administration of Nazareth did not speak Arabic. Yeah? This is how it's reported in the scholarship, you know, 30, 40 years later, without actually referring to the political context of what Zorbi's complaint was about. And then, so first Zorbi's complaint is kind of dismissed, you know, it's hardly justified. Um, but then uh, maybe actually the Hebrew interference means that it's correct, that he Arabic is disappearing in the state of Israel. Was what Zorbi was complaining about was not that his Arabic-speaking constituents in Nazareth were losing Arabic. On the contrary, we're saying they do speak Arabic. The problem is that the state does not speak Arabic. It's use of Arabic not in the state of Israel, but use of Arabic by the state of Israel. So this is what gets to me. This is why I think we need a reframing of, of a scholarship that has gathered a lot of evidence. But what I'm hoping is that by putting it into the framework for framework of analysis of what makes a legitimate speaker, we can use this evidence in a more politically sophisticated way. And why is it important? This is, don't worry, this is my final slide. What makes a particular language authoritative in community members' eyes and ears? What relationship to language allows a government and its institutions to be perceived as legitimate? And what entitles a speaker to use a language freely and to convince others with that use? Monolingual speakers of dominant languages rarely have to pause to consider such questions, but members of bilingual and minoritized speech communities routinely confront them, implicitly and explicitly. The answers matter because the foundations of linguistic authority are also the foundations of identity, community, nation, polity, and citizenship. And for me, what I'm looking at is this group of speakers, these Palestinian politicians and, um, and, and filmmakers, who are trying to reform the foundations of linguistic authority. And here is, because these foundations are not fixed forever, they are negotiated constantly. And for, to change it, you need resources. This is why I call them the new middle class. They have the resources, including the discursively uh, resources, to try and make this uh, reform possible to be included in the polity, included in the ideas of citizenship. And so what I'm proposing is that if we introduce not only nationhood, which is so clear cut with the Arabic and, and Hebrew indexing very strongly the two different nations, but also class to see more the dynamics of power in that negotiation, then we can call these new middle class multilinguals as those who, have, who are the owners of this discursive means of self-production. That's my proposal for defining uh, class in a useful way for uh, sociolinguistic analysis. Oh, and look, somebody wrote something about it. Okay, right, so this is, a, yeah, this is what the book looks like, and um, I can pass it around in case 
you're interested, it was out uh, earlier this year. Thank you so much.